Hi, my name is Tom Ollerton. This is the Shiny New Object Podcast. This podcast is my exploration into marketing technology to understand what are the latest and greatest platforms and tools and bits of tech that brands and their agencies can use. And instead of me trying to be the smart ass working out how it all works, what I do is invite on cool, intelligent, interesting guests who are, to be honest, mostly my friends uh, or uh, people I've known for a while. Uh, and today we've got Craig Hepburn, who was, until recently, the Global Vice President of Digital Brand and Creative Services at Tartar Communications. And it amazes me that you've managed to have any kind of career because I only ever saw you at conferences. And I was completely, obviously, bringing it like anyone else. But I was like, how's this guy managed to have all these really impressive jobs? But yet he's at every every conference that I'm at, and I'm not doing really impressive jobs. And so so before Tata, you were at uh, Nokia, Microsoft? Uh, Microsoft, prior to that, uh, through the acquisition of Nokia's phone business. So, And how did you end up there? At Nokia or Microsoft? Well, uh, just well, for people who, uh, who may not have come across you before, who are listening to the podcast, yeah. what, what's been your kind of journey up until the height, the, which is the shiny new object uh, podcast? Well, it's been quite a, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. Um, I think we were chatting earlier, I was like, you never know where your career's going to go. Uh, you always have those kind of sliding door moments. Um, yeah, background really was not from a traditional marketing uh, space at all. It was actually more from kind of technology, web, the internet, the sort of rise of back when sort of Netscape and um, and I started playing around with sort of web technology and and, and Dreamweaver. And Do you remember Dreamweaver? the first thing you searched for on a search engine? Oh, that big great one. Because my it was probably what would I search for? My thing was I was at York Uni and we had like a internet room. What was your browser you used? No idea, man. But I remember I typed into into Was the. Ink? I don't know. I typed into the. I don't know what you call it now. Like you know the the, the bar, the URL, yeah. the bar, and uh, I typed in, and this is gonna date me and make me realise how desperately uncool I am. But I typed in cooler shaker. But had it been Chrome, Chrome would have worked, would have worked it out. But back in the day, it just gave me some four hundred four, and I went. The internet shit, and yeah. that was it, and I didn't touch it again <laughs> for like five years or something. Well, no, well, that takes me back, actually. I was working at the Daily Record, uh, which was a, anyone doesn't know, Scottish national newspaper. Um, had huge circulation back in the day. Uh, but I was actually working there as a copy boy, which was more like a runner. Copy boy? That's what they were called. So you would basically run around the editorial, you'd sit in the editorial floor, and they would say, copy, and you would run over to whoever would shout and they would ask you to go and get some material go and get some cuttings or clippings or newspapers or whatever errand they asked you to do you'd run around and, and do it and so they introduced uh, like the, these Apple Mac computers that they just introduced what, what years is that? Would be this was back in it, no this was before that 1996 95 right, okay. um, and I remember sitting one night I was in a late shift and uh, this this guy invited me over and showed me this this browser, this thing called Mosaic. Remember, do you, you know Mosaic? So Mosaic was, was the very first browser. It was the very first user, sort of GUID, a sort of graphic user interface that allowed you to get access to the internet without having to type code. So it was an actual, and there was I remember the little screen that would take about five minutes to start up the browser. And then everything would be like, it'd be slow. It'd be like working in slow motion. Yeah. But you'd sit there and then you would bring up web pages and they would, you'd see it slowly loading line by line. <clears throat> but anyway, th- that was my first experience. But working in newspapers back then and, and get involved in, in, in Apple Macs technology, playing with Photoshop, Dreamweaver. And so that gave me a kind of real appetite back then for, I think, more like technology, creative technology, how to create things in, you know, online and... Build techno, you know, build web posters and build websites. Was that your dream though? Like as a as a young, a young lad, you must have been your late teens. I guess, yeah, so I was sixteen, point, 17. the same age. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. So were you like, oh, I really want to get into building web portals and pages, or what was your? I I, I didn't really know at that point, but that was the thing when I, I remember sitting there in front of like, you know, this kind of amazing machine, this Apple Macintosh computer that I'd never really had before. Because we used to always have BBC computers and all those rubbish yeah. things. So sitting in front of this like graphic user interface and being able to kind of create something with software, 
and then being able to publish it or you know I, at the time I was doing things like printing posters and doing flyers for friends so I was doing graphics and so I was doing a bit of print and a bit of digital um, and the idea of being able to do I mean being able to create something that quickly that for me was like a high quality and print them off and take I just found it amazing like because before that I mean to, to, to achieve or to build or to create something like that was quite a complex process it's a lot of work I, yeah. I remember I was at oh, years ago I was at an event and oh, we did you have a skateboard? Yeah. Do you remember Rad Magazine? Totally do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're, we're going. We're going yeah, back. Yeah, we're going back. And I met the um, the founder or the you know the guy who set it up. No way. Uh, you know, really old guy, like way older than yeah. you think. Um, we're chatting on about different technology and stuff, and he said that on the back of Rad Magazine they had an email address. Right. And this was in 1985. Wow. And it was the email address was like two one four four six three what like. I'm assuming yeah, like it must have been some of that in it, whatever. Yeah. And had an what, they, had, they had one email in 10 years. <laughs> oh, <No way. laughs> <laughs> well, how, how times have changed. Yeah, how times have changed. <clears throat> but yeah, so, so, anyway, so yeah, so working in newspapers, got the love for working with computers and, and specifically Macs and desktop publishing. Um, and, and that gave me sort of real appetite. And hence playing with Mosaic and then building with Adobe Dreamweaver. I thought it was Adobe back then, it was Macromedia. I remember playing around with Director. There was a product called Quark Express. So anyone on here, back from the desktop yeah, publishing days, Quark Express, it was like a, a thousand pound piece of software, a thousand pounds for this sort of drag and drop desktop publishing. That's what all newspapers, all print, all magazines were designed in Quark Express back then. Um, and I just, yeah, I just love being able to just. I used to sit and create my own sort of made-up front-page newspapers for my friends for parties and stuff like that, and it was like a party trick. They all loved it, and I'd take it around to that. <laughs> what would you put in it? <clears throat> Probably not repeatable. Not podcast. repeatable. Okay, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> but you get the point. 19-year-old lad from Scotland gets yeah, yeah, exactly. loose on uh, digital publishing. Yeah. Right. And so then what happened next? All right, so obviously, yeah. So I got a sort of... That gave me, actually, a view of... My dad wanted me to get into newspapers and, and journalism. And was so, that his background? Yeah, so he was more photography, so he used to run the darkroom, pictures, image, photography. He worked there, he got me the job there. Uh, he was very well respected and liked the, the, the newspaper, so you know, bringing in me to kind of be a copy boy uh, was like my first job. And he'd always had ambitions, son, best, best job in the world, journalism, be a journalist, you know, being able to... You know, have have been able to communicate, been able to kind of the power to kind of you know put messages across and and use journalism as that kind of vehicle. And I totally understood where he was coming from. The problem is, working in newspapers, you soon get an appetite for like, and I don't want to be disrespectful. You know, journalists. There's amazing journalists out there, but some some newspaper journalists, you sort of you're like, I, I don't know really if that's what's going to drive me. Uh, in terms of just how they approach things and how you know hack journalism was back then and I suppose still is in some cases now. And for just to give a bit of context to the listener, the Daily Record, how would you... Uh, is it Daily Record? Yeah, Daily Record. Yeah, and in, 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 uh, in the UK standard, what is that like, the equivalent newspaper? All right, so it's probably it's the equivalent of The Sun. Right. Yeah. Okay. We have The Scottish Sun as well, but it's like a daily national newspaper. Okay. Yeah, so it's probably like that. Um, the Daily Mirror. The, the Mirror, mirror is the, right. sorry, the, yeah, so it's the English equivalent of the, the Daily Record, and owned so, by the same Trinity Media. And so the Daily Record wasn't satisfying your uh, your soul at that point? No, no, it? it was it was just more of the journalistic side of it, like journalism in the traditional sense. Okay. But actually what, what I did get excited about was the fact that you could, you know, when I seen how multimedia, how web uh, and how digital technology... Um, you know, probably blogging didn't even exist back then, but the idea of being able to use technology to to push out, you know, to create content, to be able to distribute information. I seen there was something there. I mean, originally it was CD-ROMs. Um, and so actually when I was looking at going to uni, um, I started looking at courses, and, and the one that popped out was multimedia technology. And that actually was probably, I think it was the first year they'd run it at Caledonian University, and it was it was all about... Is that, is that Edinburgh? No, Glasgow. Glasgow Cali. Uh, come on. Probably fun to come on. Shit. Come on. Sorry. Okay, so you didn't... We're going to have so a fight in this <laughs> podcast, Tom. <clears throat> come on. I'm from Northumberland, man. Come on. Close, uh, but not that close. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so back then, it was. Just, I, I, I definitely seen something early, and I suppose throughout my career, I've always had that... I don't know, you have that sixth sense for, like, this is exciting. I'm not really sure where it's going to go, but I know it's going to be exciting. 
um, and it and it kind of it really appealed to me more than than traditional journalistic kind of education, and so therefore I mean one in journalist I remember one of the one of my friends was a journalist and he had to learn shorthand. Yeah, yeah of course, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember him showing me it and it just put me right off. I was like, I'm never going to be able to do that in a million years. So, so anyway, that, that really approached me to that. And the funny story was I told my dad I was, I was doing journalism. I, th- I told him, yep, dad, I'm in media. And he kept seeing these things, media, multimedia. I was like, you're doing multiple versions of media? <laughs> yeah, dad. Yeah. Uh, I have no clue that at the end of when I graduated, asked me what, was, what newspaper I was going to be a journalist at. And actually I said I was going to set up my own web design company. Uh, and, and funnily enough, he thought, that's a great idea, son. I heard that's the next big thing. But, but yeah, so it was kind of, that, that really got me into sort of multi... And it was funny, though, at uni, when they actually set up the CD-ROM, it was kind of the moment where, you know, uni's always like, a year, the curriculum's like a year or two behind, right? So we're all sitting there going, why are we building CD-ROMs and we should be just publishing this straight to, like, you know, a web page? And so we, even during that year, had to kind of change our own curriculum to push the boundaries of right. outdated... And how, how did I respond to that? <laughs> Actually, to be fair, they were really good about it. I mean, we had, we still had to do the, the, the curriculum, you had to finish it, but, you know, we, we kind of, uh, we, we took most of our content at the end of it and pushed it out into, into the web as well as websites. And as what, well was, as what was your content back then? What, what oh, so I'd done, uh, done an interactive CD-ROM and website on The Godfather. What? Yeah. Talk, talk, talk me through the user experience for that. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, sound, lots of sound, lots of sound. I, yeah, I cool. used there was a three D package. I can't even remember. Anyway, I remember hand like drawing the Godfather logo right. You remember it with the little puppet strings? Yeah, yeah. And I cut yeah. it round and I created a three. It took me honestly. It must have taken me days on my Mac to create this three D, um, like what do you call it when you do a three D render? So to create this three D Godfather render and I made it like gold and it changed color and it spun it like spun on its axis. And, and this is this is your own version of that that graphic. Yeah, but, but yeah, copied the logo and then yeah. I put it into a computer, created a three D version, and then created like an animated one, and it sat at the top corner of my little my little logo, and then you could click in. We used um, it was a product called Macromedia Director, <laughs> uh, and you created your own kind of like interactive CD ROM. You're getting me all excited. Oh, I didn't no, find that. I had no idea. I had no idea this this. This uh, chat was going to go in this direction, yeah. but I'm going to go deeper. Okay. Right? What was the purpose of the website? What was uh, what was the ROI? Well, it was, it, it, okay. The ROI was to to, <laughs> to to create deeper engagement with fans in The Godfather. It was to find out more about the characters. So I took all the best characters, and you could find out profiles, backgrounds, little snippets from the movie. Uh, you had a, an audio file you could. Uh, it was an audio file. This is a pretty sophisticated website. Well, so it was. I mean, I've actually got it in my old. I've got an old Mac laptop, and I tried to boot it up. About you a should ago. re-release this as an iPhone app. Well, I, could, tried, uh, could... I tried to contact Paramount at the time because I thought they <laughs> they could take this and add it to the C the, the DVDs or VHS videos they were selling at yeah, the time. Right, I was okay. like, put this on as an additional feature. I never heard back from it. I was gutted. Absolutely oh. devastated. So, oh my god, I, no, I had literally no idea. Right, so you you did an interactive yeah. CD-ROM and probably what was Look, it was uh, an online website. Well, it was a and flash so what, website. Like, flash yeah. was right. I remember Flash? And well, so, was, and what year was this? This was like Shockwave. It was called. This was be two thousand. Two thousand, and you still. In Scotland at this point. I'm in Glasgow, yeah. So how? what was the next step? Did, did this Godfather work get spotted by some killer brand and thought, this guy's the future? Like, what happened? Well, funny you should say that, Tom. No. Uh, oh, shit. Actually, it's a combination of... Uh, I was applying for, I mean, literally hundreds of jobs in Glasgow and Scotland, and, and I couldn't find anybody hiring anyone in the world of CD-ROM development or technology or websites, surprisingly enough. Um, I set, so I then set up my own little business and I started working with some friends who ran financial companies or you know different little businesses in Glasgow and I was everybody at that point wanted a website I remember it was the, the, the cool thing right when all these sort of businessmen are playing golf like have you got a website no I don't know a website really you need a website uh, and nobody really so, knew why they so, needed a website social they status need, thing right? it was a social status thing and so I just managed to get some uh, get some work uh Doing, doing, doing that, and, and helping people setting up their websites using, I think we had a product, yeah. So, so you were, you were an agency essentially. Yeah, it was kind of yeah. So I was what age was it? 20, 21. 
Yeah, so set up, yeah, essentially a, a little digital design agency doing websites. But funnily enough, doing the sites was actually quite hard. It was like, because you can imagine a client back then who has no clue what a website is trying to explain what they need. And, and Not as necessarily much as, that different. But anyway, well, yeah, well you know. It's funny actually, right? Well, Eighteen years later, it's probably not changed, but it was even worse back then. But what was what, where we did start? Well, where I started making a bit more money was more on the side of people needed it updated, and so back then, you know, there wasn't really content management systems as such. So I used to have to manually update web pages and stuff. So I'd get paid like retainers and to to update their web pages, and that's kind of where a bit of money came in and sort of paid the bills, um, and then. I also met a girl um, who's from the southeast, and she was up in Glasgow at the time. And so, a combination of meeting her, she was moving back to the southeast. I couldn't get a job up there. Everyone was telling me Brighton, the southeast, was a big place. The dot com was going on. It was kind of the dot com bubble back then, or whatever. And so, I just moved down to Brighton, um, or sort of Crawley, Brighton, different areas. I lived around that area and around the southeast. And. And so, how did you get a, a foothold in the, the? Actually, so this roughly this was like two thousand ish, right? This was two thousand, yeah, two thousand. So I moved down to London in nineteen ninety seven, right? Oh, and, years earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a. So what a age were you? Seventeen, eighteen. Like, yeah, we was nineteen when we moved 19. down. Yeah, so I was uh, on a yeah, on a very different tip, uh, uh, but um, it really. I really struggled when I was first here culturally because when you're from the northeast or Scotland, or yeah. two different things. Yeah, totally. So how? Like, I mean, I was down here doing music, you know, different story. I just want to be in a band, um, and that was difficult enough. So, what was it like as a, a young Scottish lad who's come down, falling in love with this person, presumably, and trying to get a trying to get a foothold in the industry? Like, how did you do that? Uh, I mean, I suppose it was it was easier than coming down on my own and having nobody and didn't know. Well, anything. you had somewhere to stay. I had somewhere which, to which stay. Is a uh, big bonus. You know, at the time, um, you know, her mum and dad were, were Scottish, and I got on well with them, and they were they were they were very supportive, um, and so they were you know, they were like you know you've got what you need to kind of like you know live here. Uh, but just start applying for jobs and so at the time I was still doing a little bit of my own thing trying to set up but it was quite challenging so I just started applying for loads of jobs and there wasn't I mean even then there wasn't a lot and, and it, it was getting to that end I suppose this would be 2001 and what jobs were you applying for? Like it was what, things like brands yeah, and stuff? it was yeah like, there was a lot of intranet producers web developers web designers web producers it was a lot of jobs around coding and one of the things that I was struggling with is everyone wanted tech and code and I was more on the creative sort of um, front end design um, more of the graphic creative side um, but it, it, there was just it was random jobs it was like CD-ROM there was kind of production it was creative production there was a lot of kind of, of, of that kind of stuff going on at the time there wasn't a lot I'd say but there was, there was, some, there was some jobs and I, I, what I can't work out is how, how you got from there to where we met when you were when you were you, were you not here when we met yeah like what, what were the big steps that you took so yeah from there very quickly got managed to get a job a great job actually on Rent to Kill Initial do you ever rent a killing issue? As in like... As in the best pest control business. Right. So pest control... <laughs> no well, way. not realising, they advertised the job. It was like something that was like, I think it was £16,000 a year. It was to be... That's big money. Yeah, back, back then, then yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, it was it was basically a web production, web producer. And for so, a rent-a-kill. For a rent-a-kill, based in East Grinstead. Yeah. Uh, and... It gets better and better. Yeah, that's true. And... And by the way, I still to the, loved that job. We base. I was the very first guy hired. Sorry. Well, actually, no. I think it was the second because it was my boss pulled on again. So I was hired to go in and basically build. Uh, it was actually an intranet. So we were creating the website, but also building all these intranet sites, which were essentially you know, kind of an internal version of their kind of um, their web web experience. Uh, and there was a guy called Peter Main. I remember him to this day. Amazing guy. He was kind of a mentor back then. He had a really big vision of where everything was moving in terms of online technology, digital. And he built this kind of amazing team over a period of... I was there for, I think, four years. I think it's still the longest job I had. Uh, he built a big team of tech, coders, creatives. And we built you know, technology. We built 
server infrastructure, websites, intranets for all of the different brands. And it was actually where we built our own content management system. So it was a really good journey. And I was kind of there four years. I then was able to sort of, at that point, you sort of want to go forward. I went off and worked for BAA um, for a couple of years, building their whole intranet technology using a product called Vignette. Uh, I'm sure people in the podcast will remember Vignette, <laughs> um, uh, a big, robust, which actually comes to full circle in a minute, because actually working with Vignette, rolling out that, which was, was quite, a, to be honest, a bollock, that was a ridiculous platform trying to implement that, um, and then moved on to a company called, which was a random thing, I was I was kind of getting fed up at BA, and I was thinking, this is not where I want to be, this is not what I want to do, and, um, and one day... I woke up with a hangover and I had a job interview for a company called STA Travel and I woke up STA? STA Travel right, okay. and, and I woke up with it. I woke up one morning and my wife said do you want to do you want to you go for that interview well at the time um, this is a new girlfriend now wife now but uh, she was like you need to get up and go for this interview uh, and I was <clears throat> I was kind of contemplating not going but I did go along I thought it was the worst interview I'd ever had and they offered me the job, uh, which was basically the job role was global webmaster. Classic uh, job is, title. Right, is, the age, I, yeah. I think I've still got it on LinkedIn. So it was, a, it was to basically essentially run um, or help them implement their whole global infrastructure as a part project with IBM, build a booking engine, global content management system. But essentially, Tom, it was a job that was huge. It was too big. It was scary. I had no. I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, obviously I understood the core basis of what they were trying to do, but it was massive. And they, they sort of turned around at one point, I think, and said, we hired you because you were the only person that applied for the job that wasn't a coder. Wow. Thanks, guys. Cheers. All right. so, <laughs> so that's really interesting. And with a lot of other guests, they've always talked about this one job that was a bit too big for them. That so, was, so what did you, yeah. what, what, what did you learn from that? job that helped you later down the line I mean loads uh, I think I think the first thing is obviously you know you're probably you, you're more capable than you pro than you ever think you are right I think most people have you know secret anxiety and inhibitions within themselves but I think the the essence, if you understand the core, you know the industry, you understand the technology. You obviously, you'd heard you know, the background I came from. What they were doing was not really much different from the core of what I'd done. It was just on a much grander scale, um, a much bigger scale. So obviously, knowing the the core foundations, but I think the biggest thing was just learning to um, learn. Actually, meet work working with an amazing outfit, uh, IBM, uh, the head of uh, innovation at IBM out in Hamburg working with them, learning from them, um, being able to kind of understand the role itself and actually building relationships. I think at the time, it was the moment where I realised you really need to build relationships on a whole number of different levels, both at senior level, junior level, also, funnily enough, internationally, so working across Germans, Swiss, I think Austrians, I was working with Australians, Americans... It's the first global role I really had where I had to work with a whole range of different... Um, it was kind of the role where I, I think I really felt like I thrived in terms of working globally and building those relationships. And where did you... And so you can't have been there for very long given you've never worked anywhere for more than four years, so... That was three years. Right. Yeah. And, second, and after SDA was... Um, and so from there, interesting, um, we implemented a, a content management platform there called Red Dot. Uh, which was the core underlying technology that we rolled out across STA. At the time, their uh, head of, uh, the CEO at the time, was kind of, they were kind of amazed at what we'd achieved with their platform. And, and, and I spoke at many of their events. Uh, they asked me to keynote and talk about the innovation we'd done, what we'd rolled out, and it became quite a... I didn't realise at the time what we'd achieved, but it was quite a big industry event. It was like you know, TUI and other big travel companies technology companies followed what we'd done uh, not just in terms of the technology but how we went about it with social media web 2.0 so the, the story became quite well known in uh, internet world I was speaking um, I think we were called out by Brent Holberman at lastminute.com has been really innovative so the, so what we had achieved there so therefore Red Dot and OpenText who were the kind of parent company thought that that was 
quite exciting and approached me to come and speak to them about how could I tell that story to their other customers. So I'd never worked on B2B or kind of uh, or sort of tech side. So it was quite interesting to go and work at sort of Red Dot Open Text for a few years and learn more about the sort of technology side, the product side. Um, so how did you get into brands? Because I, I think of you completely as a, as a brand guy, brand digital evangelist, doer. Um, so how, like this is all this is so surprising to me because mm. this is all very very technical whereas you um, you know we were chatting downstairs yeah. uh, catching up and you and you were talking about the things you've been most proud of are, are the creative things are the um you know the the work you did um, with the projection map in Millbank Tower yeah Millbank Tower you know, that is a, that is a long way away it from, is, isn't it? from yeah. this so like what what happened, what were the you know, um, let's just cover off the main steps. Yeah, so I think going to open, well, when I went to Open Text, the whole premise really was getting much more exposure to brands. So therefore, I was now right out in front of some of the world's largest brands, speaking to them, and it kind of took me out of that, as you said, that technical kind of back end kind of area into the forefront. And if you imagine these sales guys are like go out, you know, speak to these incredible brands, talk about what technology can achieve. It, it allowed me to sort of take that learning of the technology and sit in front of CMOs, which I hadn't you know, really done, and, you know, done a huge amount of before in front of a, a whole varied amount of brands and talk to them about what technology can do. And so you can imagine in my head, I'm thinking, well, this is pretty obvious, but it turned out that you know, people weren't thinking this way. It was, it was new, it was, uh, it was interesting. And so we, you know, I, you know, my team, we were able to sit there and have these conversations. And so what then happened is it exposed me, I suppose, to the opportunity to get in front of a lot of brands, talk about what the potential was. And from there, essentially, um, that's where I kind of got a headhunter calling me up about the, the Nokia gig, which was they were looking to sort of, how could they look at transforming their business in terms of digital? They knew they were going through some tough challenges. They wanted to really, you know, fast track their digital kind of uh, onboarding. And, and again, you know, got headhunted in to, to kind of go and work there. So we'll just pause on that. Yeah. We'll, we'll get back to that because obviously sure. that's a, there's a lot, a lot to tell yeah. there. So uh, this this is the Shiny New Object podcast, obviously. And it's so interesting that you've been selling up to this point in the story, Shiny New Objects all the way through, whether that's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interactive CD-ROMs, whatever. And I think it's so interesting that you got put in front of these chief marketing officers so what has anything changed when it comes to selling a new technology to marketing people? Or or is, is is it the same as it ever was? It's a great point. I think it depends <clears throat> I think it depends who you're speaking to. I mean when it and, and what I mean by that is So if I think about some of the experiences I had when you know, sitting in front of Sony and, and I think Motorola, BlackBerry actually was somebody we're sitting in front of many times that they were a big customer. It it was sometimes it was the obvious things that well to me the things that were obvious that they weren't doing, that they, they couldn't see. And and that also I think it I suppose it takes a bit of aid, you know, as you get a bit older and wiser, you start to realise, hang on, not everyone's seen the world and seen things in the same way as you do, right? Yeah. So I think it was a bit of naivety. I was like, well, this is obvious, why is no one doing this? And you realise that not everyone is thinking about using technology, using things like search engines, using Google, using things that Facebook was kind of new at the time. And, and it was just, for me, very obvious why wouldn't you harness these tools to kind of help your brand? But people just weren't really thinking about it, and so, um, and so I think certain people are open to those ideas, and you can sit there. and I've had great conversations with excellent, you know, senior leadership who are totally open to the idea of new things, new shiny things, and and they want them and they they embrace them, not just to satisfy kind of that conversation, but they actually follow up the action that they want to come and speak to. They want to go and try things. And you think you think that's a person, not a job title? Do you think that that is a a, a mindset? It's a mindset, of course it is. I think there's yeah, I've worked with a whole range of people at different levels of a business. You get people that are junior who are not open, and you get people that are you know that are closed. Just they they just have a very very kind of um, I don't know. 
a very specific way of thinking and, and it's what they've learned. Maybe it goes back to kind of, I don't know, the, the, the great bit, what got you here uh, won't get you there. Some people believe yeah, what they've done nice. all those years to get them to that position, they'll just consistently keep doing them, you know, and they don't want to change. Um, and so one of the things that I've always, I think one of the first th impressions I always have of somebody quite quickly, and, uh, now that you sort of mention it, is um, how, how open is somebody or how closed is somebody when you first engage with them in a conversation? Because that tells you a lot about where that conversation, that relationship's going to go. So let's go into that. What do you mean? How open someone is, what, like body language or tone of voice? Or yeah, I think it's like tone of voice, or? body language. Um, when you say something, you get immediately shut down. Um, you know, I'm I'm very I love new things. I like new ideas, new concepts, new training regimes. That we're chatting about things. I like yeah. trying new things. So I'm always open. Like generally, I'm pretty open to anything new. I'll look at it. I'll I'll speak to people. I'll take different opinions. I'll research it, and then I'll make a decision. Some people are very much not. No. No. So so on that. So you essentially this just before you got the Nokia you switched from being sales side to buying side pretty much as a in in marketing yeah exactly correct yeah and so it's like and i've i've been on the sales side i guess for pretty yeah pretty much all well mostly we'll all of my career, career yeah. yeah and it's one thing walking into a meeting going do you know what i've got just the thing for you this is this like generally you believe that you know, you know that you've done your own research mm -hmm. you've worked out what it is and you've got look you this is this could really move the needle for you and they've gone ah oh, you know like ah oh. and you you'd have felt that burn you you know what it's like when someone says no and you're like ah oh. but then what changed when you went to buy inside like because you must have had people like me coming into the room going you should go for this like what what changes like that's, how, how do you deal with that that's so that was yeah it's funny you bring that up so I'd never been in that so it was the moment where I think the sales guys latched on to the fact that here's a guy that's got ideas that can help me sell more product um, and and so I remember at open text and kind of feeling like they were dragging you know it it was great because actually you learn, you know, it's the idea you can out and showcase what you can, your talents, and actually it's helping the sales force achieve what they're trying to get to. But actually trying to help the company, you know, more broadly achieve their goals. But I think when you when you, you sort of realise the the mindset's different a little bit in terms of what's the end goal, what are you trying to achieve, um, what are, what was the question again? And like, because you switch from from a, a selling mindset selling to a buying mindset, mindset. Buy so mindset. how what was that like? How did you how did you cope with that? Like, would, did you want to say yes to everything or were you super cautious? I think, yeah, one of the things I'm probably, one of your questions that you were asking is what have I changed? I think I'm pretty open to saying yes. Something <laughs> I've had to become a lot better at saying no. Uh, I don't know what, I just, I, I'm very, somebody asked me to do something, I'll always, you know, Changes obviously now with family and time becomes restrictive, but I, I always try and find time or help. So yes becomes sort of the default answer. So yeah, let's go. Let's go to that question. So yeah, um, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to in a in a work context? It's f funny you said at the start. Do you know what you said at the start of the podcast? that you didn't realise how far my career had gone because I'm always at conferences. <laughs> so the thing that I've really said a lot more, I, I, I mean, that back then, mainly because I just love soaking up knowledge and meeting and networking, but now I'd, I really, I've had, I'd say no to probably 80% of things I'm invited to. And mm. I specifically will choose the ones that I feel are valuable, not only for me, but, you know, for wherever I'm going and handpick those. So I've Do had you mean to be, speaking or just attending? I think it's both. I think speaking, I still love to speak at events and I'll, you know, I'll look at it, but as you can imagine, you get a lot, so I had to be really disciplined in that. And the other thing is just attending them. But it's also attending tech conferences and digital marketing conferences. I've actually tried to go to things more around sport, healthcare, science. Right. Like I've tried to broaden because I don't, you know what it's like. It's, you see the same people talking about the same stuff and it becomes a little bit... I think there's two types yeah. of conferences. The first conference is where you and I would run into each other or yeah. you know, someone else, that, our peers, and you, and you say, oh, you know, have you learned anything yeah. today? And everyone goes, nah, not really. That, that's the first type of conference. The second type of conference is where you walk around going, 
Fucking hell. Jesus, this is amazing. This is you mental. Know? And it's those ones that I, I'll try and identify and go to if I can. But you have to, I think you have to go off piste. You, know? you yeah. have to go That's and find something. Things. And yeah. I think the, the, the best kind of compromise of the two is probably something by South by Southwest, you know, because you, you can go, you can go super niche in, your, in the industry, but you can also go off. Music you know, and yeah. movie and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. And the merging of those is brilliant as well. I think that's, yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the best. So you so you become really good at saying no to no to doing that kind of stuff. So what what are the other behaviours or habits that you've changed in the last five years that have made a really big difference to your work life? Um, I think as anyone who knows and probably seen my journey over the past five years, it's probably been around sort of my sort of health fitness mentality. And so what, so what what. Well, so what did you change from? Were you like uh, unhealthy, tab smoking, lager drinking, lout, and you now uh, pretty much yeah, human pretty much right. yeah yeah. Uh, uh, probably not so louty, but I think I was yeah. I, I had my moments. In a sense. I, I went from I think like we all do maybe I, maybe it was just me. I went from being healthy rugby playing, you know, super fit, gym every day to then married, children, traveling the world, big job. Lots going on, eating nice dinners, getting invited to lots of conferences and events, and and not making the right decisions, not sleeping very well, all that stuff, and and that doesn't really that doesn't really go well uh, when you're trying to hold up jobs, wife, family, and and, and, and something's going to give right. And so for me, actually, it, there was a moment which I just I felt like it was actually the moment I gave up. I gave up caffeine was the first thing. Strangely enough, it was one of the first things that I gave up. Like that's well, yeah. I haven't drank coffee now in I think three or four years. I haven't wow. had coffee. Brilliant. Well, I, yeah. I, I only gave it up because it was a friend of mine, Toby, uh, who's the founder of Social Media Week, Toby Daniels. Right. Social yeah, Media Week. Totally, yeah. So me and Toby were in Vegas and we had a hangover one day and uh, we'd been at a conference <laughs> and uh, CES, I think, we were there and we we're sitting there at the bar. And we both said, we had a drink, we were going, right, that's the last drink for three months. And then we had a coffee and told me, let's give up coffee for three months. I was like, cool, sugar, so let's give up sugar. So it was something like, crazy. so we decided we're going to, it was, it was this crazy thing, like, let's see if, what we can do just to get. So it was obviously, it's the new year, right? So it's January, it's that kind yeah, of time. Yeah, of course. And yeah. so it's kind of like, a, you sort of delay it to the end of CES. So we, we decided, and so obviously at some point I was going to have a beer, so I had a beer some point I was going to have sugar and had some sweets and then at one point I had a coffee and realised oh my god I had like like an anxiety kind of panic attack after having this after coffee. three months yeah it was, it was probably less than that but it was this it was a time it was, the time. It was like I realised I was sitting with my wife and we'd just been in Costa and I was like I haven't had a coffee months and, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks and I didn't like the feeling yeah and so I just I just decided um, I just think and I'd, I, by the way I'd felt great up to then um, and I've been doing workouts, sleeping better. I'd sleeping better, healthier mindset, making better food decisions, smarter decisions around nutrition. So I was just relearning everything I sort of thought I knew, and and started to make small steps towards just being a better, you know, better all in person in terms yeah, of health and nutrition. Because I've been on a, a similarish journey. So I thought that dry January was all, always a ridiculous idea. I just yeah. thought, like, you're not going to feel that, but yeah, January you'll feel yeah, it, but like, you're but, not going to, you know, it's not an ongoing practice. No, exactly. Like, so I, uh, and I still do it, I do 10 days of every month where I don't drink, I yep. don't eat meat, and I don't drink caffeine. And the, the, the meat and booze thing is like, you, you feel, bit you feel better. Caffeine, you feel 10, well, not 10, sorry, you feel 10% better. You know, you, you just, notice a big difference. You, oh my God, yeah, because you never, you so never. So why do you that. go back to drinking it then? Because you really love it. Uh, I, I know, know. I love the smell of it. I love I the that, taste that's of it. That's a really, that's a really good question. I think as soon as if I don't sleep well and I don't like do yoga, exercise, whatever in the mm. morning, and you like I stay up an hour late, uh, then you you're you start at kind of a slightly lower level, and you think oh, I'll have a cup of tea, and then it builds you back up. Um, but I, oh, I don't know. I feel I feel terrible that. Uh, that we're having this conversation as uh, two 40 year old lads it's going to be some 21 like, year old going get out of yourselves like, anyway exactly, I know, I know. So, so radical question so well that 21 year old should go back and look at what we were like when they were age well yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah that's true yeah, we're far cooler we'll, than that we'll yeah. show that was the 90s that one what come on um, so <laughs> blur <laughs> teenage fan club 
Mm. Not so much. Oh, Scottish, you missed out. Charlotte's, um, yes. Charlotte's, right. This diff- different podcast, right. If you had a digital media budget of 10 million quid to get any message out there, professional, personal, charlatans based, food based, exercise based, what would it be? I have you no know, time. I've been thinking about this one quite deeply. Come on, no, I'm tell saying, me. Uh, Good. I've I've been in so many different directions because strangely, it was the one question I was thinking about that really got me stumped. Well, tell me. Like, you don't have to commit. Tell me what your options were. Go on. Tell me your thoughts. Okay, I'll let you. I'll me, give you my thought process. Out. So I, I thought, well, that's easy because and I've listened to your podcast and I've thought, oh, I'm, I'm I've, I've got to have a better one than that. Uh, and then I went and really started thinking about it and I was struggling. And so it took a bit of time. So every day I was thinking, right, what do I really care about? What am I passionate about? And um, and there were several things I was thinking about. Obviously, the big thing about plastics in the ocean, which is a big thing, right? Um, but then I use a lot of plastics and I haven't really committed to giving up more. So I need to admit, so I thought it can't be that. Then I thought about health, nutrition, and, and but then I was like, everyone's doing that at the moment. And so I've been on three or four recent uh, trips on the plane. So I've been on, been to Finland, I've been to Geneva, I've had a few other, I've been out, I was at New York for picking up an award. Um, <laughs> Clown. Yeah, it's just thought uh, that. Yeah, just, uh, what was the award for? Uh, the Internationalist, the marketing, inter- part of 1,000 internationalist marketing, people changing the world. Top one, wow. 1,000, yeah. You're top 1,000, mate, well done. Anyway, get, <laughs> I'm on the question, you've had your plug. Uh, so, so I thought about it deeply and then it just hit me. I want, to, I want to put every single bit of that money, that budget, into a message and a behaviour to change people's attitudes and behaviours and manners on planes. What? Right, come on, let's hear it. Go I, into the I detail. Cannot, I, I don't know. Like you must have had it. What is it with people... They, they, they go through some kind of change as they enter the airport, they enter the departure lounge and they walk on a plane... They lose all manners, all sense of other human contact. Just they turn into absolute machines, monsters, throwing their luggage around. Do you bump it? Well, this is the thing. I thought no. You a good traveller. I th- well, consider yeah, a traveller. It's funny. And in, it, for, in first class with your reward. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> I do a lot of coach travel. I do a lot more now. Oh. Um, I do a lot of. But, but I just think there's an element of you're on a plane. Everyone's going the same place. Uh, everyone's got to put the luggage up everyone's got a seat allocated there's just an element of I mean it's not so much okay the British Airways there's a sort of the BA crowd the Virgin I'm sure you know they're generally a bit better behaved but when yeah. you go on EasyJet or you go on these kind of like low air low fare airlines yeah. people change they literally change I mean obviously I've just I don't know if anyone can see obviously not in the podcast but I've damaged my wrist uh, quite badly and I was travelling with one hand and I've been on planes loads of times, seen people, and I've like, can I help you? Can I? Not one person, and I was actually picking it up, and I actually had it on one shoulder, my right shoulder, pushing it, and and everyone just stood there and was like, "Excuse me, can you hurry up?" It was, it was honestly. What's so what would your message be? So I, I hear you. I think I would launch a, a campaign to make people. Would you do aware. a campaign? I would do it. I'd do, You're the first person to think about it as a as a media. I, I'd do, I'd do a campaign. How long people, would this campaign be? It will, as long always as it on. takes. It's always <laughs> on campaign. I would use uh, AI to do some really clever advertising and see what works best. Uh, but no, I, I, but I, what I think the, the point was, I think it's amazing how people turn change so quickly when they're in stressful situations. And you just see it on air flight and on flights and stuff. And it's funny, I mean, I travel with my family and my kids and, you know, and everyone's got kids and they're trying to get on the seat and they're putting... And it's always that thing where you want to get your, your luggage up there, right? And everyone's panicking and they're not going to have space to get their luggage up. But everyone yeah. always gets it up there. Everyone gets, gets so it is, done. Everyone is, gets to the location they get off. So what's the message? So it's a campaign. It's a campaign to make people aware of the fact that, you know, you, all, the, all, the, all the best manners and best behaviours and... You know, other human beings around you. Um, just, just, just be nice. Just help out. Just be patient. Um, it's a very, uh, it's a Christian message, isn't it? I know. Do, I'm, do I'm not a religious others. person at all, but I, it's the one area where I just think I watch. I sit on planes and I watch people, and I'm like, 
You can tell that person is not like that. You probably get them outside and they're really nice and they'd help you. It's just when they came into an airport, there's a stressful situation happening at the departure lounge. As soon as they got on that plane, something changes. And, and I want to know what it is. I would actually use some of the budget to do some research and analysis and get go some on, data. Yeah, all right, let's go, let's go into some detail on this. Yeah. What would be your research and analysis? So I would get some studies done on... I'd get them all wired up. Right, Heart rate biometric monitors, stuff. Biometrics. Okay, yeah. See what happens. Emotion tracking. Well, it's true. I, I, even as a, a travel, I travel a lot. And you get a little... There's always a little bit of anxiety beginning in the airport going through getting on a plane you always have a little bit you probably don't notice it as much but I'm sure some people really feel it well, I don't know let, let the well, it, tell the story well it's a journey of absolutes isn't it like if you haven't got your your boarding pass you ain't getting through that first gate and if you have a mobile and then, you, and then you put in your whatever and like your you know, luggage you got to take your your belt off and all that like if, yeah there's it, that whole a, starting process it's like yeah. a really shit computer game isn't it you, you've got to like there's an under level boss and you go up and then you have a you know, some terrible food, and like and by the time you get on the, and you got to run to catch the plane because you've met you, you you've got the yeah. wrong boarding gate. Yeah, yeah, it's like gamification done yeah. re- done really badly. Yeah. So, what would be the central message? Have you got like a line? Be nice to people on planes. Be a considerate traveller. Yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of my friends was like, "Do you need an agency to come up?" I, with I, I need I need I need a line, Tom. Is, is what I'm asking. I, I haven't solved what. All I know is it'd be amazing to analyse. Actually, do you know what I'm thinking? I might, I might, I might look into this. I might actually look into doing some research on travellers in terms of their behaviours, how they think, how they receive advertising, how they buy products, what that emotional sense through the airport does to them. Because people, by the way, spend supposedly. Well, I used to work at BA. I don't, but I don't. I just know that people spend a lot. They're in a different heightened state of. Um, Feeling and they tend to spend more money. They buy more. They're, they're more. Ra- they purchase more. They spend more money it's, in airports it's than fa- they would maybe normally. It's a fascinating retail are. world, isn't it? Because I never, at any point in my life, think. Do you know what I need? Is like a really expensive bottle of brandy. Like never. <laughs> no and then for, for some reason, in that scenario. Oh, well, have man, you bought that's, a couple? That's, that's twenty six years old, and it's got. Have you done it? Oh fuck! You know, Jesus Christ! See, I, I, want it, I, I just want to sit down and eat food. No, but I, 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 I have to pull myself away because I do. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I just, I'm like, yeah, I, I want that bottle of like yeah. really that, the expensive scotch that is limited edition. So anyway, yeah. So you, so you would kind of willingly. Obviously, within the bounds of the law, track people's data to understand their emotional state and how they feel about the people around them and the products that and they're buying. why they buy. turn into complete pricks on planes. And so, so staying on the data thing, that is in fact your shiny new object, which is oh, personal we data. We just undercovered that. You see, you see what yeah. I did there? That's oh, good, yeah. wasn't it? It's yeah. like, um, so, so we were talking about, uh, well, um, GDPR's kicking in, I mean, next week is it or the week I don't know when this oh, is going to go is that what that GDPR thing's all about <laughs> I haven't heard so, I, I keep seeing it popping yeah, up every so often I thought it was a band yeah, initially geez. but no um, so personal data could not be more of a new shiny mm. object and obviously with Cambridge Analytica so why why is it your shiny new object why are you buzzed up about the, the future of people's personal data I mean I'm a yeah, I suppose actually, yeah, it's it's quite an exciting and I think interesting area for the future. Um, I don't think it's a new concept, right? I think for a long time, I know for years we've spoken at many companies about the idea of <clears throat> why do people not own their own information? You know, like people own their own copyright, their own image rights. Um, why do we not have more ownership of our own data? And I think it's because people haven't really cared. Um, there's not been a real appetite to know. I think people haven't really understood. I suppose apart from us in the industry who understand the value of that information and that data, it's not been really exposed to the general public. And so I think, as you said recently, with Facebook, with um, you know Cambridge Analytica, I think GDPR to an essence. I think there's multi. There's a multiple sort of um, things happening in the industry. There's certain moments that are happening. That start and I think I've always you know if you look back in history if you look at these moments they start to shape where the future is going to go. I mean we don't know you know exactly how it will play out, but I do think there's going to be a much higher 
awareness and also the millennial or the, the younger, the youth and the, whatever you call them these days, but the millennials, the millennials it's still Gen Z, yeah, coming Gen through. Z. But, yeah. So these, kind of the young ones, they, they absolutely understand the use of their tech, their data. They, they know the use, they know how it's been used, they understand the value of it. Um, and so I think at the moment we're going to go through an interesting few years, you know, maybe five, ten years or whatever, maybe longer, but the how do we take back control of the information that we own which is ultimately our, I mean, what is the question? Is it our IP? Is it our, is it our information? Should we own it? Yeah, should we have control of it? And so if you think about, I can't remember, there's been a few different initiatives over the years that I've seen, you might remember a couple, but where the idea is, you know, you have your own wallet, which is your own data wallet. Yeah. And I'll happily exchange that with any company or any brand, you know, that I want to engage with. I'm more than happy to share that information and, in, you know, in, in exchange for some, some kind of benefit. But the idea of a third-party broker being able to pull all that information together and broker those relationships without my involvement in that is obviously something we've done in digital marketing. It's something we do. It's how it works. And I understand that journey. I just feel like... I think it's... You know, is it right or is it wrong? Is it where it needs to go? I don't know, but I just... I, I get the sense that that's where things are headed. Now, I think, interesting with the big... You know, you've got Amazon and, and probably taking Apple to one you've got Amazon, Google, Facebook... I think it's going to be really interesting to understand what their moves are over the next few years in terms of people's data and privacy because it's so inherent to their products and their development of technology that people love but it's also being constantly kind of attacked in terms of you know where do the lines between you know what they own about us what they know about us and what that privacy means I mean some people argue in the industry right you've probably heard it that you know people People are willing to you know, give up that right for you know, value-added service, for technology innovation that helps them in their life. It gives them more benefit. Um, but I don't know if that's so, I don't know if that's so dry cut. I think there's definitely going to be sort of a bit of a, an information data revolution in some, in some sense. I mean, it might not be massive. I think it's going to happen in waves and it's going to be little things that will happen, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So I'm going to... Make a link between two things that you mm. might think is nonsense. But if you think about people's right to vote, right, mm -hmm. your right to vote is very important. Yeah, most important thing you'll ever do every four years, or however long it is. Yeah, people died for the vote. To vote, vote, right? So, what? I mean, we had a really great turnout the last general election, right? Huge. Uh, yeah. But well, what was it? Sixty percent. Yeah, which, yeah, sixty-six. Yeah, over that. AKA just over half. Yeah, right? which is, but. It's very difficult to articulate to the, the population who are eligible to vote that it's important because it's intangible, right? You think, oh, well, if I, well, if I vote or I don't vote, what difference is it going to make, right? So I think there's a similar problem with data, right? That, right, I've point. got a really good understanding of what my data is and all the different thousands of places it's yeah. being used, and I can kind of visualise it, but I'm in that space. It's kind of my job. But what chance has my nephew, my niece, whoever, whoever it is, that are just a user of things like Google, Facebook, to yeah. even have the faintest idea what it really means to share their data? Not that they're not intelligent or couldn't understand it, but it's it's an abstract concept for me, and that's my. As industry. far as you mean, it's like the idea of the benefit of the even the, or the cost, or the cost. The, more more importantly, so like we see something like Cambridge Analytica, but that's going to die down. And that was that was a, a big story, but you know, and it was really yeah. So how? So my question. Sorry, I'm rambling a little yeah. bit. Apologise. My question is: What's is that how? how yeah, behind it. Yeah. How's it really going to change behaviour in something that is so intangible? So I think there's a whole number of elements. It's not one thing. Um, I think there is an element of people who are now more aware of the value that their data is. So I think there's one which they probably didn't have. So that's one element. Two, there's the technology in terms of things. I think, you know, I'm sure you've covered blockchain numbers, numerous times in the podcast, but blockchain and what that, that sort of distributed ledger, that idea of being able to use the blockchain uh, as a technology and underlying technology to enable this hasn't really existed before in the same sense. So I think there's that element. Um, I think there's the, the fact that, you know, there's a lot, 
there's a lot of benefit. You know, if we think about cryptocurrencies and we think about things changing, also think about just things that jobs and value. You know, where are people? If you think, I mean, one of the things I'm in, one of the things I get more into recently in the last few years was Instagram. And I just think it's amazing to watch people and and how young people creating amazing content are becoming huge influencers. Um, now they are obviously making the money through advertising or paid content stuff, but actually their their data and the, the information they have and the value that they can bring start it starts to ask the question, well, how come I'm not monetizing this a little bit better? Um, it, it doesn't. It's not much different, to be honest, from musicians. So for musicians who are creating music and putting it on Spotify, and and feeling that they're getting you know, a really really small amount of value back, but at least if you add up, they're getting something back from it. Um, so I think there's an element of lots and lots of different things come together. The technology, I think the the the, the attitude towards it, I think government regulation, I think it's going to be quite interesting. Probably not in the US, but I definitely think probably in other countries um, there's going to be a lot more attention to it. Um, I think also there's going to be a lot of organic, I think there's going to be some interesting startups over the next few years that are going to make a big play in this area, um, who are going to draw attention to it. They're going to Use the ten million bucks to draw attention to the fact that your 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 date is worth money. We have technology that can enable that, and so I think there's going to be a lot of. I mean, I've already heard of quite a few. Uh, probably they're not announced yet, but I've heard of quite a few technology. You know, in this well-backed, highly-backed companies with with very very good people involved who are looking in at this space at the moment and thinking this is kind of an interesting area for disruption. So, if you were a a marketing person listening to this podcast and they were thinking, right, okay, how do I take advantage of the change in society's view of data to do a better job as a marketer? What would you suggest that they do? Well, it's a great one. It's one of the, so it's funny, it was, it was to the point about young people coming into the industry as well. We... we now, I always, I sort of, I'm torn with this because I, I, you know, I've been involved in the industry for a long time and I understand it. But there's an element where, you know, admittedly, I've even been there and myself. We've got so caught up in the fact that we focus on the technology, the amount of platforms, data systems, CMS, CRM platforms. So there's an obsession with building tech stacks. There's then a huge obsession with data and numbers. Uh, and what you know, what we became is kind of comp- we disconnected with the human element of marketing or the, the the human connection with you know the person, and so for me a lot of you know think thinking about experiences, thinking about go back to what I was saying about the, the airport and how people change, thinking about how these are human beings that we're engaging with. These are people. These are how are we creating the best experience, the best product. How are we creating the best brand for that specific human being? Therefore, think about them as, and I'm not talking about personas and, and, and you know creating all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about actually starting to understand people as 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 kind of emotional beings rather than just clicks, rather than just impressions, engagements. Um, and I know it's you know it's. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, but how, how do you do that? When it's all about a numbers game, it's a data game. But that's the point. We became It's became a numbers and a data game. And that's been a rush to implement more technologies, take more data, use it, advertise, market, generate clicks, click farms, click fraud, ad fraud, media. You know, all of this is built upon a kind of hype around, you know, how are we going to get more people to engage with more content when there's more devices and less attention? Um, has became a bit of a race to the bottom, and I think it's going to be interesting to see. You know, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, I've, I'm still, I still have a Facebook account, but honestly, every time I load up my Facebook feed, I just, it just really want, I want to pull my my hair out. It's, it just, the, just the noise, the stuff, the, it just, it just feels like I don't know. It's just not a nice experience. It, I mean, I, I don't know. I'd love to just know how stressed people get just scanning their Facebook feeds. Or how so? I I tend to think, and Twitter's obviously got you know a big challenge in terms of just the negativity and and, and stuff like that. So I just I'm interested in how technology and humanity and society and I think you know people. What's the you know, 
you know, and, and, and this is something I've been fight with a little bit in the last few months. I've been thinking a lot about technology. I've been trying to take a little bit more time off it. I've been trying to read more, do more stuff with my kids. I've been trying to remove them from the, you know, the Xbox and try to think about, you know, people and, and just hanging out and just chilling and just not having your phones in the way. I think uh, that's, a, that's a really interesting yeah. point to finish on. And just to kind of recap on, uh, like, I, I knew so little of this stuff, but I just want to capture mm. some of it. So, you know, you started as a, a copy boy at the Daily Record, and then you, you started uh, falling in love with digital and how you could make stuff and publish stuff instantly. You really took me back to some things I totally forgotten about, like Quark Express, um, and and the fact that you, you like me, you got turned on by technology and realised that traditional journalism or publishing whatever wasn't enough. Studied multimedia at uni, and you made your own Godfather tribute CD-ROMs and websites, which is hilarious. Send you a copy to And do send me a copy. I'll put it up with the post. Um, and you set up your own sort of website agency and, and moved to, to Rent-A-Kill, STA Travel. You're a global webmaster. This is incredible <laughs> stuff. And then you, you started to talk a bit more philosophically, which is interesting to me. You said things like, um, you're more capable than you think you are, and I think that's a really important message uh, to, to all of us, really different different positions. You know, you um, you may not be paid to be a certain person, but you can definitely do the job of that person. Mm. Um, and how you learned how to build relationships at all levels, and then and then you, you put in a kind of sales context, get in front of CMOS, and we didn't get onto the the Nokia Microsoft story, unfortunately. But we, it was so interesting to hear about you giving up kind of caffeine and. Um, and your big thing is about changing people's behaviour and, and you see in a kind of tight, close-knit world of a plane, people aren't considerate enough of each other. Um, and then I, I pushed you on to talking about your shiny new object, which is personal data and, and why shouldn't people own their own data? But I think this is really interesting. I've never heard anyone say this before, but your own data is your own intellectual property. Uh, that's a really powerful statement and in this world... Or is it? I don't know. I mean, well, that's I, the question. Well, I don't yeah, know, exactly. know what you thought. Right? And in this world where we've become uh, sort of dis- disconnected, um, when thinking about personal data as a marketer, it's important that we understand that we're talking to humans and emotional beings and not just driving clicks. Craig Hepburn, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Loved it.